Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest uh, vodcast. And uh, on New Year's weekend, I actually was home for three straight days, which broke a record. Uh, I haven't done that writing go to work, and I didn't go anywhere, and I didn't do anything. But what I did is I read a bunch of articles, and I must have read and abstracted about 150 articles. So uh, let me share with you what I've learned in New Year's weekend. And what I did is I looked at some of the things I read and I put it in a question format. There are a lot of interesting things that have been published lately, so there's a number of different topics I'm going to cover probably this week and next. So let's look at some of them. I guess we've read a lot recently and we've heard a lot and watched a lot on TV about uh, the issues with radiation dose. So the question might be, what are some of the solutions for decreasing radiation dose on CT without compromising our diagnostic capabilities? Now, there was an article by Mettler which looked at some of the numbers, and again, this is just basic numbers, and it's kind of interesting. I really don't know numbers of these studies, so it's kind of cool. In the U.S. in 06, so we do more in 09 and 010, 377 million diagnostic and interventional procedures were done and 18 million nuclear medicine studies. The U.S. accounted for about 12% of the radiologic procedures worldwide, but half of nuclear medicine procedures. And that worldwide estimates uh, from 2000 to 2007 indicated about 3.6 billion medical procedures with ionizing radiation were done, the majority being diagnostic, but you see dental and nuclear medicine. And that just gives you a number annually. So worldwide, there are a lot of x-rays being done. And we also note, and this has been one of the comments surely in terms of the articles that have looked at radiation issues in terms of CT, that the per capita annual effective dose for medical procedures has increased from about 0.5 millisieverts in 1980 when CT was first getting started to about 3 millisieverts today. So there is definitely some change. Remember, 5 millisieverts is background, which um, everybody does get. Now... The question is, how do we minimize the dose patients have and yet still get quality studies? So there's two things that have been looked at that really will impact things we do. One of them I've spoken about briefly before is dual energy. Now what dual energy does is uh, it allows you to do a number of things. One is the fact that with dual energy imaging, there's several articles being written that you can subtract uh, the iodine from a contrast-enhanced image and make a virtual non-contrast study. And if you could do that, of course, in stone studies, in patients with stents, uh, even in liver imaging, you could uh, save one acquisition, so you can indeed save dose. Now, with dual energy, depending on how the process was done in the past and on some systems like this volume dual energy software, radiation doses were higher with dual energy than with single source. Uh, however, if you use the virtual non-contrast, you would indeed save dose. And now the newest scanners, for example, the flash using dual energy is basically dose neutral on the acquisition side. So surely if you did a virtual non-contrast, you would save a lot of energy. The virtual dual energy, which is typically the GE, works by switching between 80 and 140 kVp rapidly with each gantry rotation, operating in cine mode. Uh, this allows a conventional single-source scanner to produce two different kilovoltage energies nearly simultaneously. Remember that the other way of doing dual energy is sort of the Siemens way, two x-ray tubes, they're dual-source scanners, one typically running at 80, one running at 140, or maybe uh, 100 versus 140. So there's two different ways of doing dual energy, but as long as dual energy does 
uh, work, uh, it has a potential for really decreasing dose. For example, in a kidney study, maybe by 25 to 30 percent just by not doing that non-contrast scan. Okay? The second thing that you're going to hear a lot of is this iterative reconstruction, IR. And basically what you're doing in this situation is, if you think about it this way, the reason we give a certain dosage on a CT is we need a certain image quality. The higher dose you give up to a point, the better the quality. The lower dose, the images get noisy, you can miss information. So the question is, how do you do something about that? How do you lower the dose yet maintain quality? So once again, computers come to the rescue. So what iterative reconstruction does, it post-processes the data and takes what might be, let's say, suboptimal data and makes it into excellent quality data. And there are a number of articles I've read where people predict that perhaps we could even decrease dose 90% without changing image quality. So let me just show you some of the articles that have been published. And the two big uh, groups that are doing this are Siemens and GE. Now here's Harris from Duke, and this is on the GE system. Preliminary results support body dose index reductions of 32 to 65% when adaptive uh, statistical iterative reconstruction is used. Now, of course, this is preliminary results. And in that article, they also mentioned that low dose with adaptive uh, statistical iterative reconstruction, which stands for ASIR, ACER, um, had the identical results and nearly uh, image quality was about the same. Spatial resolution could be better. Now, of course, the real issue you have to be very careful about is what the, uh, these reconstructive algorithms do is kind of smooth the image. So no one has a lot of experience in terms of, say, liver imaging. If you smooth the image, what would happen potentially in terms of subtle lesions? Can you miss things? Now, in this early formatting of the system, uh, you needed to do 2.5 millimeter thick sections or better. If not, the image quality was poor. But again, uh, that's going to change. On the Siemens, we use 0.75 millimeter thick sections. But that indeed is changing. Another article, and again, 2010, you see I just got this journal in the mail and I'm dictating it. Acer reconstruction algorithm is a promising technique for providing diagnostic quality images at significantly reduced doses. And again, Acer is the GE eponym for this. And again, limitations, it takes longer to reconstruct data by a factor up to 30%, but that really is relatively small. And again, uh, that will improve with the quality of developing this process. And also a fact that I mentioned about image smoothing can lead to lack of lesion recognition. Again, this is not clear yet uh, if this is indeed the case, but it's something to be aware of. So lots of research being done in this area but I think it's an important area in terms of dose reduction. There's no doubt using the computer to make better images while we reduce dose. Again, 10 to 90%, think of those possibilities. Okay, what else? Well, every time you think you've heard everything there is about contrast, there are new things. So two questions, what's new regarding IV contrast delivery? And then a question actually we all think about, all of us pre-medicate patients who've had prior reactions and sometimes we cross our fingers, and if you think about it, typically don't have problems. So the question might be, what's the risk of injecting a patient with a prior contrast reaction? Good question. Well, let's address the first question first. Now, there was a good article by Maka looking at central venous lines and the question about using central lines. Now, I often get this question on CT as us, do you inject central lines? Well, we only inject these purple picks that are made by a couple companies. 
they go up to 5 cc's a second. We do not use triple lumen venous catheters. Uh, we do not use, surely do not use anything else in terms of power injection. So our rule is you need the purple uh, central lines for us to inject. But in this article, it did show that there's significant margin for error that these triple lumen venous catheters, at least the ones that were tested in the study, indeed work very nicely. And when they pushed these to failure, you had to be injecting at 9 cc's a second, and the failure was in the tubing outside of the patient. So again, um, you know, the safety that, the concern we always had is the tubing would break inside the patient and you would have a foreign body and potentially embolize, but it did show that it's hard to ruin or hard to break or hard to fail with these catheters, but if you do fail, it's external to the patient. So that's an added safety feature, at least to think about. And they made the point that when you do inject by hand, you can generate pressures equivalent to those caused by mechanical power injectors uh, even though maybe the um, injection uh, bolus is not that good. So again, injecting by hand, we all seem that we're, we feel safe, but to recognize that that may be sort of a false safety. But again, our rule still is use those purple picks. That's the safest thing you can do. Now, what else is coming in the future? Interesting article by Weber, and I think this is the group at Duke, that perhaps what we can do is reduce extravasation by changing the catheters. Now, catheters come in different colors. I don't mean changing from purple to green to blue to white, but you think about an angiocath, there's a tubing at the end and all the contrast gets shot out the bottom. Well, that creates a lot of force and so sometimes the vessels will rupture and you have extravasation. Now, what these guys were able to show is that um, the addition of side holes or slits in the uh, catheter resulted in a 9 to 30 percent reduction in the velocity of the contrast material exiting the side hole. So what you then can do, in a sense, is inject with smaller catheters or inject with the same size catheters, but do it safer because you're not having that same pressure. So that indeed works very nicely. Okay, and that's something I think you're going to see. There's a number of companies I know that are working on developing these new catheters that'll be easier and safer. And perhaps instead of using an 18 gauge, you can use a 20 gauge and get the same amount of contrast out of that catheter. So changes are coming in this space as well. Now, what about contrast reactions? I think we all know that contrast reactions in the non-ionic contrast era are much less common than they were in the ionic era. And that's, you know, obviously many, many fold difference. What about children? You know, I do notice that in pediatric patients, it's very rare to see reactions. In this article by Callahan, looking at over 12,000 patients, made that point that uh, in their experience, it's rare to see reactions in children. The younger the child, the less the reactions, and the great majority of reactions that do occur are in fact mild. And they went on to say the, the incidence of contrast reactions per thousand studies is lowest in young children and increases in the to adult levels as the child indeed gets older. And some of their statistics were the type 1 or mild contrast reaction was seen in 0.38 or 1 in 250 patients. Type 2 moderate was 0.08 or 1 in 1,000. And in their experience, there were no severe reactions. So again, uh, we always are concerned with pediatric patients, but you can see that in fact, it's safer really than adult patients. So that's kind of good. Now, I mentioned the question before, what about patients who've been pre-medicated? How often do people get what's called a breakthrough reaction? So 
This is a very nice article by Davenport. 88% of low osmolality contrasmedium injections in the premedicated patient with a prior breakthrough reaction did not result in a repeat breakthrough reaction. So that means 88% of the time, if you premedicate a patient, you're going to have no problem. 12% of the time, patients will have reactions. And I'll talk about that a bit more in a moment. But the, major the great majority of patients are not going to have any second reaction. And what's interesting is what they found is the breakthrough reactions are usually similar in severity to the index reaction. And subsequent contrast uh, medium injections usually do not induce repeat breakthrough reactions. But again, the breakthrough reactions are very similar to the first reaction. And that's indeed very important. Severity, signs, and symptoms of a breakthrough reaction are most often similar to the index reaction. So if a patient had a mild reaction and they're premedicated, the odds are they're not going to have a reaction. And in the 12% chance they do, it's going to be very mild. So that indeed is very comforting. Um, so on the other hand, of course, is if patients have had a moderate or severe reaction, you can see that if they do break through, they will have that same severe reaction. So if you tell me someone had shortness of breath or anaphylactic shock, I mean, you know if they react again, they're going to have the same reaction. They're not going to get three hives. So again, it's very, very important. Now, a question might be, what patients are more likely to get breakthrough reactions? And this article, Davenport, made the point that breakthrough reactions uh, are more common in patients with a history of chronic oral corticosteroid use, drug or severe allergies, or allergies to four or more allergens. So the patients who really are allergic tend to have worse reactions, tend to break through more commonly, but that's something we know just from the get-go that patients who have significant allergies are more likely to be allergic to contrast media. Now, in this article, I did look what did the authors do to pre-medicate patients? Their premedication regimen was 50 milligrams prednisone taken 13, 7, and 1 hour before the imaging study, and 50 milligrams of Benadryl 1 hour before the study. Uh, to put in perspective, we've had very good results with premedication. We do 24, 12, and 2, same doses. So again, there's a little bit of variation in what you can do, but this article makes it very nicely clear that if you premedicate, Chance of breakthrough reactions is small. Mild breakthrough reactions, you're still going to have mild reactions. You don't have to typically worry that if you do break through, a mild reaction will be a severe reaction. That would indeed be very common or uncommon. Okay, very good. Let's look at one other area in this talk. And what about the kidneys? Uh, and two areas I read a bunch about was renal trauma, some review articles, and some recent thoughts about CT urography. So let me share that with you. So here's a good article about uh, renal trauma. Good comment. The increased use of CT has been partially responsible for a growing trend towards conservative management, except in cases with extensive urinary extravasation or devitalized areas of renal parenchyma, uh, especially in those cases with, with multi-organ injuries. Now, the article made the point, and I'll just review this with you, that we typically use the AAST grading system, which is based on surgical findings, and it's a very useful tool. There's five categories, and it really helps predict outcomes. So here's the categories, and again, it's something you can put in your report. One might be a contusion or small hematoma. Class two, hematoma with less than a one centimeter or less than a one centimeter laceration. Level three, laceration over a centimeter. Level four, deep laceration or vascular injury. And number five, or grade five, laceration like a shattered kidney 
or avulsion. So the fives are the ones that are really bad. Obviously, they go into surgery. Four, people uh, try to avoid surgery. And the one, two, and three typically are not going to surgery. So let me look at that a little bit more carefully. Grade one, normal, con normal with contusion, microscopic or gross hematuria with normal urologic findings. So again, you know, it's possible not to see anything on CT, yet you get a mild contusion that can give you hematuria. Hematoma, non-expanding subcapsular hematomas with no laceration. Those are grade one, no problem. What about grade two? Hematomas, non-expanding perinephric hematomas confined to the retroperitoneum, or lacerations that are superficial, less than one centimeter without collecting system injury. Now, as you go to deeper lacerations, grade three is within one centimeter in death without uh, collecting system injury. Now, grade four and five, as I mentioned, most of the time end up with surgery. Grade four, deep lacerations extending through the cortex and medulla, and uh, also vascular injuries involving the main renal artery or vein with contained hematoma, segmental infarcts without associated lacerations. Of course, grade five, as we mentioned previously, are the really severe injuries, and those patients are at risk for losing the kidney. They typically will go to surgery. That may be the only uh, way to do things. Some facts with this uh, grading system. The great majority of cases, up to 85% of grade one injuries. Grade five is the least common, of course, uh, no great surprise. So in terms of ordering CT, uh, no great surprise when you order CT. Typically, it's part of a multi-organ system evaluation, but surely with penetrating trauma and hematuria, with blunt trauma and hematuria, or with gross hematuria. Okay, very, very simple. Nice article in radiographics. Now, what about CTRography? There's been a few articles about that, and let me share a couple of them with you. A couple uh, survey articles. There's one by Silverman. CTRography is essentially defined as a CT exam of the urinary tract before and after the administration of IV contrast that includes excretory phase imaging. Well, we've spoken about CT of the kidneys that have made the point that you always need to do excretory phase imaging. If not, you'll miss pyelonephritis. If not, you'll miss certain renal tumors. So in a sense, everything we do is CT urography. Article by Townsend looking at a survey of the Society of Urodiology most urologists use CT urography in their practice today, so some no longer perform IV urography. Well, the bottom line is we haven't done an IVP, I don't know since when. Um, again, the protocols in terms of CT urography will indeed vary. Now, in terms of CT urography, the society has a number of indications for CT urography, from hematuria to suspected TCC to transitional cell follow-up to UTIs, congenital anomalies, trauma, on and on. But as I said, it's hard to imagine when you're looking for renal pathology that you would not do excretory phase imaging and so you're typically doing CT urography. In this article as well, uh, one of the things that Townsend mentioned was 3D imaging was a good way of looking at the CT urographic images, can be used to help plan surgical and interventional procedures as well as understanding complicated anatomy. Now, another article by Kohan looking at CT urography in terms of bladder cancer, making the point, of course, that we can see carcinoma of the bladder, but the role is not well established, um, made the point that CT urography in and of itself cannot replace cystoscopy at the present time. 
uh, in part because uh, bladder tumors often will not be detected by CT, particularly smaller ones. Again, key things in looking at the bladder, of course, is, is good distension, good opacification. So the issue is not so much that CT urography doesn't work as much as it's hard to distend the bladder. If you really want to distend the bladder, we all know that retrograde studies work very nicely. We also know that in terms of bladder, uh, we like early phase also for looking at small uh, bladder tumors, which are often vascular. A couple other points. Uh, I read an article about renal cell carcinoma talking about sites of metastasis, lung being number one, and then liver, bone, and soft tissue uh, close by. I also read this article about syndromes in renal cell carcinomas. The one we typically see at Hopkins is von Hippel-Lindau syndrome. Remember pancreatic lesions, islet cells in the pancreas, uh, pancreatic cysts, cystadenomas. Uh, we talk about uh, also hemangioblastomas of the spinal cord and cerebellum in those patients. But there are two other syndromes. One is Bird-Hogg-Duby syndrome and one hereditary papillary renal cell carcinoma. The Bird-Hogg uh, Duby syndrome, when I first heard about it the first time, I thought it was something from the Dukes of Hazard. That was Boss Hog, I think. But it's a rare autosomal dominant disease. The syndrome includes hair follicular hematomas, renal tumors, and pulmonary cysts. Tumors usually occur at an earlier age, which is true in all of these syndromes. And they're usually chromophobes, which are one of the least common renal cell carcinomas. Um, good article also in terms of uh, the kidneys, in terms of cystic renal lesions. I gave one of these vodcasts a few weeks ago speaking about mixed epithelial and stromal tumors and talked about how it's in the differential of cystic lesions. Uh, this article makes the point it's worth looking at, there's some nice images, that there's a range of cystic tumors that you can see from clear cell to multilocular cystic nephromas to mess tumors to cystic nephromas to complex benign cystic lesions, that there is some overlap present, there's certain specific findings that allow you to make the diagnosis but at times it can be more difficult, so it's not always easy. The last thing in terms of kidney I read was this interesting article just looking at stone size, and this article uh, is something we see in many other areas. So this article said that it's easier to see stones in a coronal plane and also get more accurate measurements because sometimes stones are oval, and if you use axial images, they measure three millimeters and they measure five or six millimeters on a coronal. And we speak about the size as predicting whether or not a stone will pass. So stone estimated size is better in the coronal plane that axials can underestimate by 20%. We've made the same comment in pancreatic cystic lesions, IPMNs, where we say under 3 cm you watch, but then sometimes it's 2.5 axial, but 3, 3 coronal. So again, the ability to look at things in a volume is gonna change how we think about things and this article makes the point that you should be looking at things in the coronal plane and give the largest measurement, not just the axial measurement. So that's a number of different things I've read uh, this month or this past weekend. And uh, I found many of them to be very interesting and hopefully they'll be of value to you in your practice. And what I'll do next week is pick it up here looking at some of the interesting articles.